Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Zechariah, if you will, chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. And we've given you the uh, visions of Zechariah. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 7 through 17, the red horse rider among the myrtle trees. And in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, you had the four horns. And in, in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, you had the four carpenters. And then chapter 2, 1 through 13, the whole chapter, you had the measuring line or surveying line, if you want to call it that. So that brings us to chapter 3. This is the fifth one of these visions. If you couple together the horns and the carpenters, which a lot of people do, it would be only the fourth. But uh, the way I have them broke, broken down, we'll call this one the fifth. And so uh, as we look at the third chapter, this is Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. If any of you want these uh, different visions after the service, will you let me know and I'll give them to you and you can have them uh, uh, written down uh, if you would like in the divisions. Uh, so this is the fifth one that we have on our records. And uh, it would be uh, titled, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, when he stands before the angel of the Lord, you'll find there's always someone else standing there to resist him. And let's look at the context and you'll see Satan's presence is there too. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now look, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now, Satan is an adversary. Satan is standing there to be his adversary and to resist him. When we think of Joshua the high priest here standing uh, before the angel of the Lord, we see that Joshua represents the entire remnant of the company of God's people in the Old Testament. We're going to see him in a little while that he's clothed in, verse 3, clothed in filthy garments. And we'll talk about that. But the first thing we have to see is where he's standing and who's standing there to resist him. You know, the, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And the adversary will always be there to hinder and accuse. He was there to hinder and accuse uh, Joshua the high priest and to accuse Israel. Uh, but God will not allow any harm or any charge to come against us to stand or against them. We find over in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, if you'd care to look. Revelation 12, verse 10. Well, we ought to read verse 9 just to get the connection to see who it is. It says in verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Look at all the names. Serpent, devil, Satan, great dragon. Which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Now look at this last statement. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So he's the accuser. He's the one that's always standing to resist. But you know, none of his accusations will be able to stand. And especially when we come to, uh, that was uh, Israel of old, 
God's earthly chosen people, but you come to the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, you'll find that not any of God's uh, called and saved and believers of this day and age will be uh, accused, or when they are accused, that they will not be able to stand against us. The same thing that happened to Joshua of old happens to us on a daily basis, but God will not let that stand either. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 34 it says, Who is he? Well, verse 33 says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who? Who's going to do that? It is God that justifies. Well, if God justifies us, who's going to lay anything to the charge? If God has justified us, who dare lay anything against us? Then it says in verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. If Christ died for us, and he does not condemn us, And the Bible says, He that believeth on Him is not condemned. It says, It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. And He not only has forgiven us and died for us, but it says, Who also maketh intercession for us. So He intercedes for us. So I don't think uh, that Satan's accusations have a chance of bothering us. We may think that they do, but God's not going to take them seriously. He's going to just... uh, rebuke Satan for that. In fact, when we get back to the context in Joshua, I mean in uh, Zechariah about Joshua the high priest, we will see that that's exactly what happens. He does rebuke him. But uh, as we look at this again, hold your place in Zechariah now where we're studying. It says, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now look in verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, He had chosen them, and He has chosen you and I in Christ. He had chosen in sovereign grace. He has chosen us the same way as believers. And His sovereign grace is not only His choice of us, but His rule and protection over us. So that's why He says, The Lord, look, rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Look at the question in verse 3. I mean, verse 2 of chapter 3. The last part of verse 2. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? So that they were plucked out of the fire of Babylonian captivity and brought back to rebuild the temple and the city as well. And remember, it had been, we studied in our last book where they've been back about 10 years, 12 years, what was 16 years, I believe. He turned to Haggai. They'd been 16 years had passed since they had started the the uh, foundation of the temple. You can go back in the Old Testament and I won't give you all the references, but you'll find where that they had set up the altar the first thing. And they already had a, a system of worship before they started even building the temple, rebuilding the temple. So they were as a brand plucked out of the fire. God had brought them out of that fiery uh, captivity that they were in. They'd been there for uh, 70 years in bondage. I hope some of you saw the rejoicing of some of the Iraqis today on the television where they feel like that they've got a hold now and are set free. They tears come to my eyes. I don't know about yours. People are meant to be free. As as Bush said, it's not a a nation doctrine. It's not a a doctrine of this government. It's God's doctrine that men be free. And 
And we're born to be free. And we should be free from tyranny. The uh, children of Israel suffered 400 years in bitter bondage in Egypt. And God brought them out by blood and by power. He redeemed them with the blood of the Lamb and by the power of God that brought them out and delivered them out of that bondage. And think of the rejoicing that they had. And so, we, we can be thankful today. We ought to be thankful today in this country, right now, here in this church, that we are in a free nation and that we can worship God and nobody can bother, does bother us. We just go on about our business. And we're not, someone doesn't threaten us because of, of what we're doing or if we speak our, out our mind, it may not be the mind of someone else, but be that as it may, every one of us have a right to voice our own opinion and dissent. Our favor, opposition, our uh, positive favor of something that goes on without any danger. Thank God for that. You know, people that have never been free may not even realize what it is to be free for a long time. But you know, well, you might say when the children of Israel came out of, out of bondage, God is a good paymaster. Did you know that? He said, you take with you your gold and your silver and all of it. And they came out and they spoiled the Egyptians. You remember the story? They borrowed every man their gold and their silver and everything. Well, we hope it's not used in a corrupt form as they finally used that gold and silver and stuff to make golden calves to worship and attributed their deliverance to, to idols. But you never know what will happen. But look at this. It says, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua, now I want you to notice these, this verse. It says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. This is what Zechariah saw in a vision. He saw him with filthy garments as he stood there before the angel. And this sets forth Israel's moral pollution. Filthy garments setting forth their moral pollution of the whole nation. And Joshua represents the entire remnant company. He is the high priest, represents them. The high priest was a representative of the people in the religious aspect. Zerubbabel was their representative in the civil world, their leader and ruler in that respect. But here, Joshua represents the religious aspect of the, the nation. And he was clothed in this vision. He was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And you know, it's not only a picture of Israel of old in their filthiness and then their pollution that had brought them actually into the captivity that the, and the bondage they were in. But it, it could be a picture too and is a picture of the unclean sinner standing before God. That all of us this is a gospel message as well. A picture of the sinner and all of his sins. And we're going to see how the cleansing takes place in a, a moment. But we'll be cleansed by the blood of, of Christ and made righteous, the righteousness of God through Him. So as we progress along, along in this, notice what we see here. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before uh, him. This is the angel of the Lord uh, is speaking to the other angels. This, this one angel is speaking to those that stood before him. That's the whole company of them. Saying, 
And he told them, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. He said, take away the filthy garments. So he's going to clothe him with a change of raiment. He's going to clothe him with clean garments. He's going to clothe him with uh, acceptable garments. And you know, this is certainly a picture of what takes place uh, for you and I today. That the Lord has taken away our filthy garments and He's put on us a change of raiment. We'll give you some scriptures in just a moment that will uh, uh, verify that. But just for the moment, just uh, maintain that thought. The filthy garments that we had in sin. We were morally, religiously, and in every aspect corrupt. And that we needed a change of raiment. And God says, I'm going to provide that for you. You know, we, they have little children to sing up here sometimes, and we haven't had them sing it lately. If you all will remind me, we'll get them to sing this one. Uh, and I'll forget it, Shirley, if you don't remind me. But anyway, uh, they used to sing. Uh, remember the little song, The Best Thing in My Life I Ever Did Do? They sing, The Best Thing in My Life I Ever Did Do was take off the old robe and put on the new. The old robe was dirty, all tattered and torn. The new robe is spotless and never been worn. So they go ahead and say, the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. And so we've got a new robe. Look in the book of Isaiah 61, verse 10. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. And see what it says here. Listen carefully. It says, I will will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Look at that. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. So what has he done? He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isn't that a good standing for you and I to have today? The garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. Come over in the New Testament and in Luke chapter 15, if you care to look. Luke 15 and verse uh, 22 would be good. 22. This is when the prodigal returned. And in verse 21, he says, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and no more worthy to be called thy son. True repentance, true return, a true change. And it says in verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe. And put it on him. Look at that. The best robe. And put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf. And kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. It wasn't the end of the merriment. It was only the beginning of it. How many of us can truly say that that our salvation initially was only the beginning of the merriment and the joy that we've known since then? We all know that. It continues, doesn't it? So they began to be married. But I want you to notice again, verse 22. The father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. So that's the robe of righteousness. We'll find that the Bible tells us that that robe is a robe of righteousness. And then it says, and put a ring on his hand. Now the ring was not just any ring. It was the signet ring. The father was giving the son a ring that they used in the Old Testament uh, 
to seal the wax, to seal the documents. It was a signet ring of authority. He says, not only give him righteousness, cleansing, but give him authority. And that says, and put shoes on his feet. Now then, there's many that went barefoot. The, the slave uh, or servant uh, type of people wore sandals. But he says, put shoes on his feet. The shoes were shoes of respectability. In other words, what to do for him? What about this son? He not only had a righteousness, imputed. we not only have imputed righteousness of Christ, We've, given author- we've been given authority. The Bible says that no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness, righteousness again, is of me, saith the Lord. It's kind of combined in that verse. Isaiah 54, 17. You ought to rem- rem- uh, memorize that verse. Isaiah 54, verse 17. Mark it down. And start to memorize it. And then... We find that the robe and then the ring of authority and then the shoes on his feet of respectability. The dignity of every child of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He's lifted us up from the miry clay and set our feet upon the solid rock and established our goings. He put a new song in our mouth, even praised our God. It says, And many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Look in Psalm 40, if you will. I'll give you a whole sermon there. Psalm 40. I want you to look at it. That, what I just quoted. Verses 1 through 3. I want you to get this whole message here. You, you might want to write it down for a sermon. It says, especially some of you brethren that bring them. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. Now then look. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit. A horrible pit is the condition of the sinner. Condition of the sinner. Horrible pit. Condition of the sinner. He brought me up also out of the horrible pit. The power of the Savior is that He brought us up out of the miry clay. Out of the horrible pit and the miry clay. That's the condition of the sinner. Now then, the third thing is He set my feet upon a rock. That's the security of the saved. We're set upon a rock. And then, He established my goings. That's the walk of the saved. Walk of the saved. Now look at this. And He had put a new song in my mouth. The song of the saved. Now then, Here's the testimony of the saved. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. The influence of the saved. The, the testimony was even praise unto our God. And then the influence of the saved. Many shall see it and fear. They'll reverence God and shall trust in the Lord. That's the influence of the saved. I'll give them to you again. The condition of the sinner. Horrible pit in the miry clay. The power of the Savior. He brought me up. The security of the saved, He set my feet upon a rock. The walk of the saved, He established my goings. Taught you how to go. The song of the saved, He put a new song in my mouth. The testimony of the saved, even praising to our God. And the influence of the saved, many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Now, if you can't take that and preach it, there's not much preach in you. You take that and, and you'll have a message. You know, some preachers claim about not having a sermon. But there are sermons all through this Bible. You can take any of the parables of Jesus and show the condition of the sinner, the power of the Savior, and the results or the salvation that He provides. Any parable or any miracle, especially any miracle. 
And you'll see the condition of the sinner and the power of the Savior and the salvation that you have as a result. So if you don't have a sermon, just turn to one of the miracles of Jesus. Turn to the man at the pool. And what do you find? I believe it's in uh, Luke 5. No, it's not Luke 5. It's uh, John 5. John 5. The man at the pool. And it tells us that he had been there a long time. His condition was he was helpless. He couldn't save himself. While he was trying to get in the water, someone went went in the when the water was troubled, stepped in before him. So he he was helpless. And it says no man helped him. No one else helped him. That is John five, I think. Isn't it? Look at it. Okay. And then so no one helped him. Jesus is the only one. And Jesus came and says, Wilt thou be made whole? And it was his choice. He says, Sir, I have no man but when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I'm coming, another stepped down before me. And so what happened? Jesus is the one that saved him. He told him to rise and take up his bed and walk. He was saved in an instant of time. And he went on his way. And that's what happens. We go into detail and expound that. But you see, the result was salvation. The condition was horrible, wasn't it? The invitation was open. The salvation was accomplished, and the man was set free from what uh, malady he had. So, don't ever think that you don't have a sermon if you just turn the Bible, open the Bible. There's lots of sermons in here, from the Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. But the main thing is to study it and look into it, and you'll find a lot of good things. All right, let's look back in Zechariah chapter 3. So, notice what happened. And Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, that's verse 3, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from before him. Uh, and behold, I have caused, and, and unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Now, I want you to notice another reference is in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 8. This will be the final state that we will be looked upon, clothed in white raiment. Revelation 19, verse 8, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice in verse 8 it says, And to her was granted. Let's read verse 7, 8, and 9. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Blessed are they. Fine linen. The righteousness of the saints. And so that's how we'll be clothed in the future in glory. You know, white is, is a color. is a really a non-color, but it's just a color, really. It's white, and it stands for righteousness, cleanliness, godliness, purity. And we're going to be like that before God forever in God's presence. Now, now, the world doesn't look upon us that way. And we don't even look upon ourselves that way because it hasn't yet happened. But it says when He presents us, we're going to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He's going to present us faultless before the presence of His glory, Jude says, with exceeding joy. Great joy. So, let's get back to this now, verse by verse. Uh, Verse 5 tells us, And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. This is, The fair mitre was set upon the head of Joshua the high priest. A symbol of his restored priesthood. So look, and I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they put 
So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Priesthood restored. Out of all the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, 70 years of bondage, and now what? Deliverance. And not only from the strait that they were in, but from their moral condition, their pollution that they were in, this was cleansed and all brought about. And now a recognition of their priestly, the priestly aspect of the family of God then. And you and I have that priestly reference to us. Did you know that? First Peter chapter 2. Look over there. First Peter chapter 2. And we'll see what it says here for you. You need to get this. First Peter chapter 2. Beginning with verse 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Now look. And holy priesthood. And remember. You're a holy priesthood. Not talking about the preacher up here or some special uh, leader here in the church, a deacon or or someone that's assigned to a function like that. Not the preacher. He's not a priest. I'm not a priest. But it says, you're a holy priesthood. And it says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Let's drop on down. In verse 7 it says, unto you therefore which believe. Who is it that's, that's the priesthood? He is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Down in verse 9 now. But ye, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, which in time past were not a people... But now, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. See, in past we were not a people. In fact, the scripture there in verse 10 that says in past you were not a people, refers back to the book of, listen carefully, the book of Hosea, wherein his people at one time were considered not a people. But here in the New Testament, this verse is applied not only by Peter here as we read it, but by Paul to the Gentile believers. That we were in times past not a people, but are now the people of God. And that's how it's applied to you and I this day. But notice the fact that it's pointed out that you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy priesthood. You're a holy nation. A peculiar people. And it tells us that that's the, the function that we have in the New Testament. Back in Zechariah now. Chapter 3, let's continue with our verse by verse. It said in verse 5, And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. This was a part of the priestly garments back in the book of Exodus and through Deuteronomy. And uh, you'll find much spoken of it when you study the priesthood. But you go back and find that, that this fair mitre upon his head, so they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by Now then, verse 6. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways... Now here's what he wanted him to do. If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand stand by. So he would have a special place... Before the angels of God, you know, you and I have a very special place before God's angels. 
It says, are they not, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for, for the, them who sh- shall be heirs of salvation? Who shall be heirs of salvation? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So, uh, that's Hebrews 1 verse 14, I believe. Now, let's go on with this. It says uh, here that uh, in verse 7, Zechariah 3, verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand, that stand by. The angels are among us, and we walk among them. Now I want you to notice this next verse. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. The men that stood by Joshua are men wondered at. These were men of uh, signification. These men, these special ones that stood by him, they're men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. Now here's the next vision we see. It's Jehovah's servant, the branch. And this is in the third chapter, verses 8 through 10. Maybe we'll have time to finish that quickly. The branch. Notice how it's capitalized there in your Bible. And it's speaking especially of Christ. It's, a, it's not a new title for, for the Lord. In fact, if you look at Isaiah 4, verse 2, the title is not a new one. Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2. Notice what it says here. In that day, the branch of the Lord. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. The branch is spoken of. And also look in Isaiah 11, verse 1. 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Now, what does Jesse have to do with it? He was the father of David, right? And Christ is to be made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He is made of the seed of David according to the flesh. But listen, declare, verse 4 says, but declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4. So the branch was of the root of Jesse. You have Isaiah 11, verse 1, if you turn there. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, out of the sprout, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's Isaiah 11, verse 1. A branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold plenitude of the Holy Spirit. So you find this branch or sprout that comes what? Out of the root, out of the rod, out of the stem of Jesse. You ever planted something in the ground and it just... I think I've told you probably too many times about my fence post back there in Oklahoma. Some of you may not have heard it, so you that have heard it, bear with me. Well, I went down there and I dug, I cut off a lot of trees, some of them about four inches in diameter. Then I cut out a big one about six or eight inches in diameter for a corner post. And I built a fence around the little farmhouse that we had there. And lo and behold, one morning I looked out there and that corner post had... Branches sticking out all over. It looked like a tree growing there. No kidding. They were long. They were not just little short sprouts. They were just growing. 
But you see, and it was just a post. But you could put it in that damp and uh, wet ground and it'd grow. But anyway, uh, my wife laughed at me and my father-in-law looked out there and he saw that thing and he brought the biggest kick to him. Of course, I needed to get some good cedar posts and they wouldn't be doing that. They'd dry it out, but uh, I didn't have that choice and so I built a fence anyway. But what I'm saying is, Look what it says in Isaiah 11, verse 1. Back there in Isaiah 11, verse 1. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. It came from that root, that stem, that sprout of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Job speaks of, of something that if a tree, you know, if you think a tree's dead, he says, you know, it'll, it'll, ri- it'll rise again. Much of what I've just illustrated to you. And in the book of Job, you'll find a reference to that. From a stump, you think, well, you know, it, it'll still bring forth. So we never know when God gives it life, it's going to live. And it's like a resurrection, isn't it? Christ speaks of resurrection. And the, the thing about it is here, we find that this one that comes out of the stem of Jesse, Jesse and his sons, and David was the one that was chosen to be king. And the, in fact, if you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1, I want you to notice what it says at the very beginning. Matthew chapter 1. And by the way, the genealogies are not boring. Look at Matthew 1 verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Look, what? The son of David. The son of Abraham. Who's the first thing that's spoken of? The son of David. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The son of David. So, we find that... Uh, Go back to Isaiah 11, verse 1. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now we must, of necessity, for time's sake, turn back to Zechariah chapter 3, and we'll try to finish this uh, few verses. Uh, And we just wanted to show you that this title, the branch, was not a new title that had been given to the Messiah that would come out of Jesse and out of David. In verse 9, you have uh, Zechariah... 3 verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving stone, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now then, as far as locally was concerned, the stone of the foundation of the uh, uh, in Joshua's day, the high priest, and the rebuilding of the of the walls and then the and the temple as well. Remember, Haggai speaks of it's time for God's house to be built upon that foundation. And Zechariah bears some of that same burden that it would be built. And it said it would be engraven, and it was graven in the Old Testament upon that temple stone. And I will remove the iniquity of that land. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor, and under his neighbor, under his the vine and under the fig tree. Before we get to verse 10, let's do a little bit more with verse 9. A stone he's talking about. Now we know that Jesus is the chief cornerstone that we find in the New Testament. Look in uh, Isaiah 4 verse 2. We didn't quite read far enough in the fourth chapter, but 4 verse 2. It says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be... uh, of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Now let me give you another reference. In the book of... uh, uh, Let me see. 
Isaiah, let's turn to Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Notice what it says here. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, God, behold, now listen, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. He says, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, four things. He that believeth shall not make haste. So, first of all, he's a sure foundation. Remember, Paul said, another foundation can no man lay than that is laid. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. No one can lay another foundation but Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible tells us that Peter said that he's the stone or rock. Remember, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him in Matthew's gospel, Thou art, uh, I say in thee that thou art Peter. You're a little rock, a little pebble. But he says, Upon this rock, this great rock, upon himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was the tried stone. Remember, the devil took him into the great temptation in Matthew chapter 4, and he was tried and tried and tried and tested. And what happened? Each time he overcame Satan's assaults with what? The Word of God. It is written, Jesus would say. And so, he was the tried stone. And the Bible tells us he's the chief cornerstone. In fact, that passage I gave you in the book of First Peter chapter 2, where it's talking about uh, you and I as the priesthood, but look, in, we didn't read verse 6 on purpose, but look at verse 6. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, and this is the same Scripture we're studying in Isaiah. It says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And before Peter said that neither is there salvation in any other, look in Acts chapter 4, if you will. He said before, before that, before he said, neither is there foundation in any other, neither is there salvation in any other. That's Acts 4, verse 12. What did he say right before that? We all quote Acts 4, 12, don't we? Where it says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. But look at verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And then he connects that, neither is there salvation in any other. See that? So he says, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. Just the same thing that Peter says over there in the book of First uh, Peter. Just the same thing that Isaiah said in Isaiah 28, verse 16. So back in Zechariah now, and we'll have to hurry. Verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. We already gave you a reference of the sevenfold plenitude of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, verse 1, remember? And now the seven eyes. And what do seven eyes speak of? This speaks of the fact that God's uh, omniscience, that He can see everything that goes on, that He knows everything. Seven is a number of perfection. And He knows the end from the beginning. It speaks of perfect intelligence. You know, you have a lot of smart men in this world, but God is, has perfect intelligence. We can't imagine what perfect intelligence really is, can we? We see well-educated uh, men. We see men of great knowledge. And we think, boy, that's a smart...